0: Hey guys, welcome back to Cedar and Cypress Podcast, and also welcome back to the Advent with Allison series. This is episode two, I believe. Yes, we are in episode two. This is all about messianic prophecies. I hope that you have been following along so far with episode one, The Greatest Lie Ever Told. And I did a bonus episode on Wednesday that I hope you enjoyed about slowing down and seeking the presence of God and just living in a more deliberate and intentional way. That was a completely impromptu episode that just God gave me on the fly. So I hope that blessed you and encouraged you in some way and that it contributed to your experience and your joy this Advent season, just, you know, helping you slow down a little bit. My goodness, I am very excited for today's episode, but also very overwhelmed. I'll just be honest. Messianic prophecy is a very challenging topic and also to just be transparent, I rewrote this episode three separate times from different perspectives and I approached messianic prophecy in a bunch of different ways and I kept trying and nothing was really working and so I I honestly just slowed down. I took a pause from it because I felt like God just wanted me to take a step back from it and the reason why messianic prophecy is so overwhelming I think to study but it's also still great and so good and amazing but overwhelming is because there is incredible amount of literature and biblical scholarship on this topic and a lot of different ways to approach messianic prophecy you can approach it from a perspective of like putting yourself in the shoes of the Jewish people and the rescuer that they were going to anticipate you can take the approach of how likely it was that Jesus was going to fulfill all the prophecies, there you could take them type by type. For example, you could talk about the ones about his birth or you can talk about the ones about his life or his death, his resurrection. The point is there are just a million different ways to approach messianic prophecy from and so that is why it was it was a lot to compile and a lot to look at. And so what I actually decided to do is we're just going to zoom on in on a couple of the Messianic prophecies because there are so many of them. Actually, there are over 300 of them. There are just so many. There are hundreds. And it would take forever, honestly, truly forever to go through all of them. But we're just going to kind of hone in on some things. And this is going to be a bit more of like a crash course, an introductory episode on messianic prophecy because what I'm going to give you today is kind of a dip into what messianic prophecy is how we can study it how we can appreciate it what it tells us about Jesus and about the gospel story so I'm not going to be diving in too deeply into you know the the original language or the cultural context even though those are important things because for right now I just want to kind of give us a crash course and help introduce us to what messianic prophecy is especially because I'm wanting this epi- episode to be very Approachable to people that are not familiar with studying mess- messianic prophecy, or it's just something that you you aren't in the practice of doing. So for those of us who are pretty familiar with the Christmas story, I think things like the virgin birth, the shepherds visiting Jesus, the wise men, the star of David, the angels, all of those things are just very familiar to us, and they lose a lot of their wonder and their value and their shock value, really. The fact that these things are breaking natural law and we just accept them for what they are, which is a good thing. It's good to have a childlike faith, but because we get so used to this, we get really desensitized to how incredible the Christmas story really is. And like I did in the first episode where we talked about the lie, we talked about the fall, we talked about what human lo- humanity lost when they sinned, I would really encourage you to re-enter the wonder of Christmas to really approach it with fresh eyes. The fact that the world was just 100% flipped upside down when Jesus came. This episode is also directed at anyone who doubts the personhood of Jesus because I know a lot of people who really do struggle lot with the person of Jesus. Was he really who he claimed he was? Or was he just a good teacher? People that I know don't doubt that he exists, honestly, because I think that there is so much <laughs> biblical scholarship and evidence and historical evidence of Jesus, which is another episode we could do if you guys are interested in hearing about that. But I I don't know a lot of people that don't think Jesus existed because of the impact that he has had. Yet, I do know a lot of people that doubt his divinity, that doubt that he was God and is God, doubt he's alive today. And, I mean, I also know a lot of people who just don't really know what to make of him because he's such a huge historical figure. But, what I'm not here for is a spiritual, a spirited academic debate. That's not necessarily what I'm looking for, although those are really fun and can be useful. But I'm really just here to share with you Messianic prophecies and, you know, what Israel was expecting and looking forward to for a long time and how they had anticipated the coming of some kind of savior or rescuer and some of the things that they kind of got a little bit wrong in some of the same ways that we misunderstand Jesus today. So before we get into all of those things, We do this every single podcast episode. It's I might be getting a little bit monotonous for you, but definitions are incredibly important because I've been saying this phrase, messianic prophecy, and I think it is really important for me to just first define that for you and explain what it is. So we're going to break that into two separate parts. We're just going to approach first the first word of it, messianic, which is messiah. Typically, it's characterized as a liberator, some kind of rescuer, some kind of savior, and that's actually not the root word of what what the word Messiah means when you're looking at it from the Hebrew and Greek perspective, although it is characterized by that liberator aspect of it. It actually was synonymous with Jesus' name, Jesus the Christ. Uh, and Jesus was actually known as Yeshua, that was his name, even though we call him Jesus today. But the root word of of Messiah, when you're looking at the original language, the Hebrew, and the Greek meaning is that, the person who is the messiah is anointed. And furthermore, I think it's important to define that word cuz anointed is a pretty vague term as well. But what anointed means is set apart. It means to be protected by God and it means that you're specifically purposed for something. So you're set apart, you're completely different. Something that can kind of help us put that in per- into perspective besides Jesus is John the Baptist. He was set apart to lead the way for Jesus and to point people to Jesus before they were ready to to receive him. John the Baptist is someone I think that is a great example when you think of someone that's anointed or set apart because, honestly, he was kind of a guy that was on the margins of society. I mean, the Bible tells us that he ate locusts and honey and he wore animal skins and, uh, I mean, he's kind of that guy that you just would think is a little bit strange or a little bit weird. I think we all know those kinds of people who we don't really click with and we think that person's just a little bit weird. I love them and they're great, but, like, I don't know what's always going on in their mind. John the Baptist, I think, was that kind of person and in a great and amazing and divine way because God divinely ordained him to be the person to prepare the way for Jesus so he could point everyone to Jesus. But again, when we're talking about someone that's anointed or set apart or who's protected for a specific reason, John the Baptist is a great example. Just someone who's very different and we see that... That narrative repeated all throughout the Bible and the biblical narrative. Uh, Joseph is a really great example. If you read his story in Genesis, he was someone who's just very different and set apart and contrasts everybody else around him. I don't even have time to get into all the amazing ways that Joseph contrasted people around him. But throughout the biblical narrative... If you look at the different people that God ordained and decided to use for his purposes and in great ways, you're going to notice that these people are just kind of on the margins of society. They're different, they're strange, they're unusual, or they're not cared about much. I mean, Moses was someone who was very ashamed. He had killed an Egyptian. And for example, David was a shepherd boy. He was on the lowest class of society There's a lot more examples, but when you're thinking of Messiah, when you think about Jesus, what you're really wanting to hone in on, what I want to emphasize is that set apart, anointed, and protected for something. Furthermore, Messiah has a very strong connotation of royalty or some kind of dynasty. So the dynasty of David, the connection to David's kingdom, being in the line of David. If you want to learn about Jesus's genealogy, that is in Matthew chapter 1. Incredible read, so much packed in there there is also an aspect of Messiah that means absolute. So, supreme and ultimate and just absolute. That's one of the best ways to think about it, that there's nothing that came before, nothing that came after, and nothing that's going to ever be the same. It's really just synonymous with Jesus the Christ's name. So, In the NASB, which is the New American Standard Bible, which is often kind of thought of the one of the best word for word translations along with ESV, this word Messiah appears in Daniel in Matthew and in John. Daniel has messianic prophecies and Matthew and John are kind of showing the fulfillment of those prophecies that are only not only in Daniel, but also throughout the biblical narrative. A really great example of this is when Simon Peter recognizes who Jesus is as the Christ. We find this in Matthew chapter 16, which says, "...Jesus was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and some others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets." Notice here before I move on that the disciples are clarifying this kind of connection and making this connection between Jesus and the prophets that came before him. So they're already noticing this pattern of being set apart, being very different, being someone that's sent by God. Furthermore, so he said to them, but who do you yourselves, who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then he gave the disciples strict orders that they were not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Here we see a confession of who Christ is. Now, this was not necessarily the first one. We know that Nathaniel or Bartholomew seemed to to be the first person who recognized Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. But this is a really good indication to us a really great example of where we can see someone coming into the knowledge through the the work of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus is and was. And furthermore than that, there were over 300 prophecies, like I mentioned at the top of this episode. And prophecy was very frequently used by God to communicate to his people through a person or a group of people. So, these were people that God divinely revealed himself to and he set aside, like we said, he anointed for his specific purposes f- to, to give messages to his people on his behalf, to communicate on his behalf. Elijah is a, an example, Jeremiah, Isaiah. So those are the people that are being mentioned here by the disciples in this Matthew 16 passage. There is this connection that is being made between the prophets prophets of old and before and the one that is standing right in front of them now being the fulfillment of all those prophecies, all those those things that people had talked about for so very long. And one thing that's that's really incredibly important when we, we think about prophecies is to clarify exactly how they were fulfilled. Now, like I said, because there's so many, I just can't get to all of them, but there's a couple of them that I've pulled out and I want to look at very closely because there are things that I I really see impacting us today. Now, for those of us who do not frequently believe in prophecy, prophecy is something that we tend to be very skeptical of. I understand you. I totally get you. This is something that is very hard to wrap your mind around. In fact, someone actually sat down and did the math to try to see what were the odds that somebody was going to fulfill all these prophecies these hundreds of prophecies and because i'm not the most mathematical person i i you know i can do math and i can do accounting and things like that this is not nowhere near what i can do so i'm going to read you a little bit of an article that i found about the mathematical probability that jesus is actually the christ to try to help us wrap our minds around this idea of prophecy and the fact that jesus really is and was who he said he was so there was a professor at Westmont College who calculated the probability of one single man fulfilling all the major prophecies that that were made concerning the Messiah, concerning the savior or liberator that was to come. And this doesn't even include all the minor prophecies, but really there's the major ones. And over the course of 12 different classes, representing some uh, 600 or so university students, the students helped him with this. The professor worked out the mathematical calculations for this. So I'm going to read you an excerpt here from that article. After examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man filling all eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. To illustrate how large that number is, the professor gave this illustration. If you mark one of 10 tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is 1 in 10. That totally makes sense, 1 in 10. Goes on to say, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They'll cover all of the state two feet deep. Now, mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. That's literally just one of them. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up the one silver dollar that has the special mark on it. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just that is the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day, from their day to the present time. And that's only eight of them. And like I mentioned, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus and he fulfilled all of them. So, two feet deep covering texas and silver dollars that's just that the probability of that happening is so low and so insane that this is one of those things that are just impossible without god like the parting of the red sea like the virgin birth like coming back from the dead like we believe in these crazy things that are in the bible the odds of something like this happening are incredibly low and yet jesus still fulfilled every single one of them 10 to the 17th power that is crazy And now that we have a really good grasp and understanding of what Messianic prophecies are, I did want to just pick out a couple that we can look at closely because there are just so many, but I wanted to look at a couple that I I really think are going to help us get a grasp on what we're looking at this Advent and why we should be so joyful, why we should be praising God for the amazing things that he has done. And the first one is, just like I mentioned a couple times, it's the virgin birth, which is in and of itself A contradictory paradoxical statement, the entire kingdom of God is paradoxical, but a virgin birth is the most paradoxical thing that could possibly exist. And today we have so many modern technology, so much modern technology and ways to have children that, that were not even thought of or heard of ever in the first century. So we have to think about the fact that A virgin birth is impossible, and it is still impossible, but God is not bound by natural law. There are so many things that Christians believe that are honestly kind of wacky, and I think it's okay to say that, and one of those just being the virgin birth. So I'm going to read to you here a verse from Isaiah 17, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God's with us. Matthew 1, 22 says, Now all this took place now, so that was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Luke 1 says the same thing. And there's a little bit more detail. Luke's account of, of what happened has quite a bit more detail and information. But you see that repeated again in Luke 1 from what is also in Matthew 1. Like I just want to stop here for a second because honestly a virgin birth is just a like a weird and paradoxical thing to think about. But we as Christians for a time millennia believe in this. We believe that our Messiah came through a a virgin. Came through this young woman who was betrothed to be married and would have been ashamed by her society and would have been shunned by people in her life because it looked like she committed adultery or had sex outside of marriage and that's not difficult for us to understand because at their time they had no way of ever thinking that someone could be pregnant without having sex it's it's just like not not possible at all when we think about that i just i just what i really want to pull out of there is that this is the god that we believe in we believe in this god who came through a virgin birth Yet, there are so many things in our lives that we don't believe God for. Like, if we believe in all these wacky things, why do we live and act in such a way that is not indicative of this, as does not reflect this, that we believe God can do the impossible? For example, I have been convicted recently as I've been studying this Advent series to put together for you guys that I believe in these wacky things and yet I don't believe God can do the impossible in my life. I don't believe he can... I don't always live like I believe he can save people who are unbelieving in my life. Or I don't always believe that he can transform such and such thing in my life. Or I don't think that he's capable of doing this. Or I don't think he's capable of doing that. And yet, we believe in this God of impossibles. He specializes in impossibles. Those are his specialty. Doing the things that subvert mankind's expectations and completely flip things on their head. What we need what I would like us to pull from this thing from this and emphasize from this particular prophecy is like how impossible is it that this happened and yet it still did. That is incredible. And so we should believe him for those same things in our lives. We should live and act in such a way like Mary did, like Joseph did, walking forward in that belief that we have in God, that he is who he says he is, and he will do what he said he will do. Because we know that is what happened with Mary. Furthermore, we know that her cousin Elizabeth got pregnant when she was incredibly old and like should not have been able to get pregnant at all. You can also read that story in the first couple chapters of Luke, which is an incredible story as well, which even further reflects what happened with Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis, the fact that the Bible says Abraham was as good as dead. Like, it was impossible that Sarah should have been able to get pregnant. So, God is completely doing this over and over again. We see in the scriptures, he's subverting our expectations. And so we can look for him in those things that we don't think are of him. We can look in the, we can see circumstances that are difficult. We can seek and find him and see that his handiwork is all over our lives, even when it looks like it's not. And then he is possible. He is capable of doing the impossible. Now, I don't say this to, to manipulate and say that we should use this as foundation for prosperity gospel or to help people to pray for things that are like natural law, physically impossible. But what I mean to say by that is that he's doing wonders in our lives all the time, yet we we refuse to see it. So I just want to emphasize that. And while we are here talking about this idea of God subverting our expectation, this brings us perfectly to the next prophecy that we're going to look at. And this one is Jesus being the king. So we see in Zechariah 9.9 that says, "'Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey.'" I want to clarify here that in this cultural context, a king coming in on a beautiful horse would be kind of like synonymous to the fact that the royals come in this beautiful carriage or we, you know, the, the president goes in a limo and he's protected by his secret service. Like he has his entourage. Leaders and kings and royalty have their entourage and they're greatly praised and greatly respected. Everyone recognizes it and knows. I don't know if you've ever been driving when some, like, roads have been blocked off for a government official or the president or a mayor or whatever it may be. And it's it's this huge, big thing. So, that was the equivalent of what this idea of co- riding in on a, a victorious horse would be like. And yet, Zechariah tells us in in uh, chapter 9, verse 9, that he's going to come in on a donkey, which is the most lowly and humble thing that a king could possibly come in. And then we see this fulfilled directly in Mark 11. And and it says, When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. This is also incredible. This is also incredible because we see this this humility in Jesus, that he didn't need to come in with a huge entourage. He came in on a donkey, which is the most lowly and humble animal he could have possibly come on that would also be able to support him and his weight just as a man. But he chose this lowly donkey. And this is an incredible thing because it shows how Jesus was not interested in, And the fame and the glory and the self-righteousness that humans are so often interested. Though he was a man and though he was tempted with everything that we are are tempted by, I'm sure he was tempted to self-glorify and to just revel in his own praise and worship. But yet he wanted to glorify his father. He wanted to point Je- he wanted to point people back to the truth. Jesus was completely and utterly concerned with the fact that people would turn from their evil ways and repent and turn to God because turning to God is a life of joy, a life of praise and a life of worship. And that was really what he was concerned about. And he he was concerned with doing the work of his father well and doing it to the best of his ability, which meant dying on a cross even. So if you think about it, Jesus even riding in on this donkey is already aware of all the things that are going to happen to him. And this is a really, really great reminder to us that we don't need an entourage. We don't need that praise. Like we can follow in Jesus's footsteps this Advent series and like not look for, look around for our approval and our praise. And this is also the season where there's a lot of giving that's encouraged, which is a great thing, but we're encouraged by Jesus not to let your right hand let know what your left hand is doing. The fact that we don't need praise, we don't need glory, we don't need people to recognize us to store up treasures in heaven because God sees the good works that we do. And this is a great example of that. It's just a really great reminder that we don't need to be puffed up with pride and, and seek self-righteousness this Advent season and this Christmas season as we are with our family and with our friends and... We're constantly inundated by you know parties and events and so much so many things are going on during the holiday season and, and there's so many opportunities for us to present ourselves in the cleanest and best way possible and look the best to everyone else and try to keep up with the Joneses. But honestly, we can just be transparent. We can show up as our authentic selves because it's all that God wants. I talked about this in the bonus episode about seeking God's presence. You don't need to polish yourself up. You don't need to clean your mess up before you come to God. He wants you as you are humble and lowly. And even so, maybe there is something that you're going through this Christmas season that is unfair and unjust and and not okay. And we're going to be talking about forgiveness later in this Advent series. And so I, I want you to be able to look forward to that. So I'm not going to dip into that yet, but I, I want to point us to this fact that Jesus was falsely going to be falsely accused. This is another messianic prophecy that we can look to. This is one that really, really, really puts things in perspective. Psalm 35, 19 says, "'Let tho- not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink in the eye who hate me without cause.'" Later on in chapter 69, verse 4, it says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? So this is saying, like, he was completely blameless. He was not guilty of what he was being charged with, yet he was still needing to somehow fulfill and be punished for what he had not committed, and that's what that verse means right there, what I did not steal must I now restore. Then we see this being fulfilled in John 15, which says, where Jesus says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is omitting even here right now, like, I don't have a reason to be hated. I have done nothing. If anything, Jesus, Jesus was the last person that would deserve to be hated. You know what he had been doing all up and through now? He had been telling the truth. He had been healing people. He had been redeeming people's lives. He'd been transforming people's lives. He had been bringing joy and good news. And you know what? People did not like that. People did not like that. They hated him for no reason and honestly, maybe there's something you're going through that is just completely unfair and unjust this Christmas season. I know that and I I know that that can be really hard and sometimes it just feels like the circumstances or what you're going through or what someone else is putting you through or perhaps there's some choices that you've made that have led you to a bad part in your life and it feels like there's nothing that you can celebrate this Christmas season and you're just you're really not in the christmas spirit and i understand that but honestly do you think that jesus felt like rejoicing all the time do you think that jesus felt like he wanted to go to the cross do you think that jesus wanted to be hated of course he didn't he created all these people he loved them deeply and he wanted the best for them he wanted them to repent and come to the truth and leave their sin behind them and yet here he was being hated without a cause and he's taking all of it because he's humble and lowly and he knew he was there for a reason he knew he was there for a purpose to die on the cross and to resurrect again and save people People from their sins. And if this isn't an example of how we can act in this Christmas season, then I don't really know what it is. That when the world is unjust, when everything around us is unjust and not okay, and things seem like they're just getting worse and worse, see terrible things on the news, your life is falling apart, or, or you're just not where you want to be, and you're not content. If, if, if this is an example of how to be content in all circumstances, then I don't even, I, I just don't know what it is. Paul even tells us in Philippians 4, he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things i learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So Paul is even saying here, he's reiterating that same thing that like no matter what is going on, no matter if it's, it's, it's completely unjust or you're being hated for the sake of Jesus or for something that you didn't do or it's just not fair what's happening to you, it's still a great reminder and a great example of how we can be joyful in all our circumstances because Jesus bore that and he knows what you're going through and he bore that along with you. Furthermore, in the Psalms, we see all these predictions uh, and pointers to the messianic prophecies that Jesus will resurrect from the dead. And this is a really important part because we talked about just, you know, we just talked about how Jesus had to die for our sins and, and be resurrected and that resurrection is the most important part. And that's something that we talk about, about when we celebrate Easter, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead after three days of being in the grave. And Psalm 16 predicts this and says in 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to shale or like your holy ones see corruption and this is uh, again kind of repeated in chapter f- uh, 49 verse 15 that says but god will ransom my soul from the power of sheol for he will receive me and we see this directly fulfilled in matthew 28 that jesus is resurrected from the dead behold there was a great earthquake for an angel of the lord descended from heaven and came and wrote back the stone and sat on it his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow This is so incredible because, again, here is another instance of things that that Christians believe that are are just really wacky, but they're incredible because we believe that we have faith in an all-living, all-powerful God who can do anything and is not at all prohibited by natural law because he created this world and amazingly, he can do anything he wants. We see that all these things were laid out and told by God who completely transcends time. And even though it was predicted and shown back in the Psalms, we see again that Jesus even said, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they didn't even necessarily believe him then when he was right in front of him. And it was hard for Thomas to believe even after seeing Jesus come back from the dead. And he said, I, I need to hold, I need to touch his hand and hold his hands and see that he has been pierced and it's really him. And and sometimes we can act that way too we can feel like we need to see some kind of proof and evidence and is this not evidence enough for us that five over 500 people saw jesus after his resurrection how many times do we know what god's promises are how many times have we we know what god has told us and we are we're confident in that and yet we refuse to actually see his good hand when it's working because we have hard hearts, because we have faithlessness, because we do not believe. Sometimes we need just to need to cry out to God like that man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. I do believe in you, but just help the parts of me that don't believe in you and don't have faith that you will say what, that you will complete what you said you will do. And when we believe in this God, this all-powerful God who has the power to raise jesus from the dead then we have to believe that all the things that he said he's going to do all his promises are essentially as good as done they might as well be done already because he transcends time completely that's the whole thing that's the whole conclusion that we're meant to draw from messianic prophecies first of all that jesus is and was who he said and claimed to be but furthermore That means that still rings true today, that all the things that Jesus said he's still going to do, that he's going to return, he's going to fully justify everything, he's going to punish evil, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and he will wipe every tear and there will be joy and we will be able to bask in God's glory for eternity. We have to believe that's almost, that's as good as done. Even though we right now in this current moment in time that we are living in this human space, in this human time, in this human context, because we don't transcend time the way that God does we're currently living in this state and we need to do everything we can to improve and to uh, improve the world around us and to bring other people to christ and to uh, love the world as god told us to do and how jesus instructed through the example of his life and yes we are meant to do all those things but furthermore we believe that all the things jesus said that he is going to still do they're essentially as good as done because he transcends time completely That's the conclusion that we really draw from the fact that God gave all these prophecies to help people know and to indicate when Jesus was going to come so Jesus could clarify, Hey, all those things that you've been reading about your whole lives, especially to the Jewish people who had been oppressed yet again and again and again by evil empires and evil nations that overcame them and overpowered them. And yet, how many different times they had leaders that they maybe thought were going to be the one to rescue them and liberate them and free them from their political oppression and the oppression of the governments that just burdened them with heavy taxes and with many different abuses and human rights abuses. How many times that they thought, you know what? He's probably not coming anymore because leader after leader after leader had failed them. And honestly, they were probably losing faith. I mean, I would too if after centuries and generations of being oppressed doesn't look like this Messiah guy is coming. Like I might as well just give up on it and live the life that I want to live because you know what? It just looks like he's not coming. And we can act like that so many times in our lives that it just we don't think that God's going to show up. We don't think he's going to transform and heal and do the things that he said he would do. We fail to believe the promises he's given us in his word. We have a written collection of books, essentially a library, a wealth of information from God, and yet we fail to believe it. We fail to believe that he's going to fulfill his promises, or we live like we don't believe it. And this is just as convicting to me as it is for you, so I don't want to be up on a pedestal or preaching at you or condemning you in any way, but I'm saying we as collective believers we have a job to do and it's all it can all be informed by this fact that we believe that God fulfilled these prophecies that he sent his son Jesus and Jesus fulfilled every single thing that we couldn't. And it's also crazy that our lives are planned out in just this in just this way. Jesus has he's aware of every single day of your life. He knows everything that's going to happen. He has numbered your days. He's aware of it all just the same way that you know Jesus's life was laid out. Our ways are known and completely planned out by God. He has this all under control. Our lives may as well have happened to God. What I'm trying to get us to see is, what we're in the circumstances we're in right now. We don't have to stay stuck in them because we know that God is over all those things. He has founded everything, planned everything. He has got it all under control, and He's going to use it for His good and righteous purposes to bring others to Him and to bring glory to His name, and also for the good of you and the joy that you can experience, the betterment of your life, and. And how much better it is when you follow God. Truly, I have really only scratched the surface of Messianic prophecies. There's so many that, other ones that I would I would love to talk about but just don't have time to. What I am going to do is include the resources that I looked at for these this particular episode and include all the verses that I mentioned and read to you because there were quite a few. Uh, then The resources that I would specifically point you to is the mathematical probability that Jesus is the Christ. I'll include that article for you in the show notes as well as two different resources that have listed... Old Testament prophecies and how they're fulfilled in the New Testament with direct verses. There's even a PDF where you can just literally click on them. It's that easy. It's incredibly helpful and convenient to study through those. So I really, really do encourage you, if you have any time, to just study some of those prophecies during this Advent series. If it's really just one that God guides you to and he wants you to meditate on and read that every single day or just stay in that for the whole month of December, kudos to you. That is awesome and I encourage you to do so. Or maybe God wants you to look at several of them. Whatever it is, I really do encourage you just to look through those because people have spent so much time and effort to compile those for us and it's a shame that a lot of those resources aren't being looked at. We have so many biblical resources and information out on the internet. I think we should take full advantage of them So i have included that for you to go and research for yourself. What does this all mean for us? For those of us who don't believe in Jesus, in this Yeshua, this is who Yeshua was and is today. He is God, fully human. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He took on our burdens and he bore our flesh and he bore the suffering and pain of this world and then furthermore died as a criminal when he had never even done a single thing wrong in his entire life. He was the perfect spotless lamb. This is all the, what all the messianic prophecies are pointing us to and the implications of what we believe, these wacky and crazy and natural law defined things that we as Christians believe in, have insane amount of implications for our lives that are beautiful and amazing and extremely cool. If you choose to live into them, you're going to see your life transform in crazy, crazy ways. And a couple of those just two of them really, are humility and forgiveness. Those two are major, major things that we can pull out of the Christian life as direct consequences or direct implications of the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross and in being raised back from the dead. The next episode, we're going to be talking about humility. And the episode after that is going to be about forgiveness. These are really challenging and tough topics for us to discuss because this world hurts and life is hard and there are going to be a lot of challenges. And yet, Jesus gives us this perfect example of humility and forgiveness and everything that he's accomplished. And I don't want to spoil all that for you because I have so much planned for you and I'm really excited for you guys to hear those two episodes and how Advent impacts us in that way, what it really means for us on a practical level. This I wanted to be kind of just a crash course and an introduction, like I said, to descending into the crazy amount of information, and overwhelming amount of biblical scholarship that has been done on messianic prophecy. I wanted us to see what it looks like to look at those verses side by side and how incredible it is to see that Jesus filled all of them against all odds because God is the God of impossibles, all sovereign, all powerful and all knowing. This is the God who is on your side who wants you to come to him and who whose angels praise and glorify him when even one person comes to Christ or repents of their sin. So if that's you, I just I just pray that that will be encouraging to you, or if you've been a Christian for a really long time, and maybe you have heard of Messianic prophecy, maybe you haven't. But I just hope that you maybe learned something, or walked away encouraged, or um just further confirmed and more confident in the things that you know are already true. So I hope that episode served that purpose for you. Make sure to tune in for next week's episode on humility, which is going to be part three of our Advent series of five total parts, and that's what I have for you guys today. I hope you really enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.